Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. John Wu. Now you're saying to yourself, all right, Guy Adami starting this podcast, John Wu. Some of you know who John Wu is, director. He directed the movie, Dan Nathan, Face Off 1997 with Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. Why do I mention that? Because Nicolas Cage played Castor Troy. I love Nick Cage, by the way. But the name of the movie was Face Off. And I got to tell you something, Danny Moses, this week has been a face ripper of a market. See what I did there? So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Danny Moses's appearance on CNBC's Fast Money. By the way, we're going to talk to David Faber, the brain, in a little while. I love David Faber. He's on the Mount Rushmore of CNBC, in my opinion. And folks, please leave a review. Don't tweet us. Don't what, Dan? No, they can do do? all of that. Just leave a review in the podcast store. Leave a review in your favorite podcast store, which is one of the dumbest things I've ever said. And I've said a lot of dumb shit. By the way, this is on the tape. I'm Guy Adami, always joined by Danny Moses. Breathtakingly handsome Danny Moses, by the way. And the brilliant Dan Nathan, back from Rome, Italy, from vacation, all fired up. Before we get into the market, because I got to tell you something, today being Thursday is a fascinating day, but you were on CNBC's Fast Money, I believe it was Tuesday night, and I was sitting next to you, and I could feel... I could just feel you being tense. You weren't Danny Moses. It's not true. I walked in right to the lion's den, right? Right before I came on. You play you guys play pretty good music kind of in the waiting yeah, room. Yeah, Led area. Zeppelin. Little PJ. Well, David Bowie was on. And I, I don't want to hear I don't want to hear anything. First okay, of all, I know I, I know okay. but please hold on. David Bowie. It was prophetic. I'm going to tell you why. Is not in my top 50 I don't care, artists. But some of his songs are, so I don't care. He's he, amazing artist. Anyway, it was let's dance, mm-hmm. right? And I, I was walking in, and I'm like, put on your red shoes and dance the blues. That's what the market. So I went in thinking, just put on your red shoes and dance the blues. The songs they're playing on the radio, you got to dance, right? You got to dance, and that's what this market is. And so you guys set me up, fast money, peppered me, put, brought me on as the big short guy who Wait, hates hold, everything. Hold, hold on, on a second. That's the job. Hold on a second. I don't know how you guys operate on television. I didn't pepper you with. As a matter of fact. I put up. I put a ball on a tee for you. I, I get it, but listen, I come in as the big short guy, whatever. 
I've been saying all along that inflation was coming down, right? And I said, don't obsess about a print. Well, the market's obsessing about CPI. The market wants to obsess about PPI. And I was just on there saying, listen, at the end of the day, fundamentals matter more and you can dance around. Am I shocked that the market went up on that number? Sure. At this point, I should not underestimate the power of the market at this point. And I, you know, listen, the Fed, I don't think they're done yet. But even if they're done, again, I'll say the reason I said on Fast Money, why would they be done? I think it's a combination of inflation ebbing and the consumer pulling back, which in turn makes inflation come down. So so the folks at home know we have, I wouldn't say we have a green room. We have a closet that is our dressing room at CNBC's Fast Money at the NASDAQ. And I brought Danny down there to get makeup on and everybody loved him down there. Then I brought him upstairs. Remember that? And everybody sort of had COVID tests and everybody fawned over him. Please. But then about 15 minutes before the show, I go to take a leak, which I have to do before the show, because if I don't, Dan, Nathan, something bad's going to happen during the show. So. And as I'm walking by, I see you reading your notes, talking to yourself. You were like mumbling. I'm like, what are you doing? I said, don't rehearse. Don't rehearse. Not true. I just didn't want to get caught. And then you guys baited me. Mel baited me. Danny, I know there's is there a particular short out there that you like to talk about every so often. I see you guys smirk. So this is a setup. And so, yeah, I had to bring it. Was, it was yeah, funny. It, it, bring up it, the Tesla. Yeah. yeah okay. So we got we got a hot on Tesla. We got hot on Tesla. It was Listen, up $30 you did a great the job. And just, you know, yeah. my mom, um, who is a huge Mrs. Fan, Nathan. Mrs. Nathan. Uh, Guy Adami is her number one favorite fast money trader. True. Just so you know, that's matter of factly. She gave a quick review. She said, Danny has a really nice way about him. He did a great job on the show. And he subscribes to your wardrobe choices because I am jacket buttoned up no tie and you know what that is guy what is that that's the OA outfit that's the OA uniform I was just trying to fit in guys appreciate you guys all right so let's all right so let's segue to the market here because the quote that was probably on CNBC pro all day the next day was that investors equity investors are whistling through the graveyard okay so let's talk about it well first of all it's whistling past the graveyard yeah I don't know okay. where through, but that's okay. I get, and you know what? I happen to agree with you. I mean, I'm totally in your camp. Just to sort of set the record here, you know, this move, although later than I thought would happen, I thought this would end by middle, late July. Here we are in early August. With that said, market's done pretty much what it should have. I mean, Dan Nathan talks about this the low of 3,600. You the high of forty eight hundred, the midpoint of that, the fifty percent Fibonacci for you Italians out there retracement is forty two hundred. Here we are, so it makes sense. I happen to think the next leg is significantly lower, but that's what they say. Dan Nathan makes markets. Yeah, no, and, and I do think it's interesting. Um, I saw uh, Jim Bianco Bianco Research. He tweeted um, that on March fifteenth, the S and P five hundred was at forty two hundred. Okay, that was a day before the Fed started raising interest rates for the first time since 2018, 25 basis points at the time. So we have a stock market that's flat in that time period. We have rates that are up considerably. I think the 10-year is 2.75 or 2.8 as we talk at the time. I think it was probably one and a half, one seven, or something like that. And then the two-year is obviously much higher at 3.2 or something like that. So I thought that's really interesting context. Danny, you've been making the point, though, even if Fed funds or the CME Fed funds tracker has just shifted, right? In the yep. September meeting, it was a very high probability of a 75 basis point hike in September. Now it's a very high probability of 50. But your point is just wait because the QT is just kicking in. Yeah. I mean, it went from 66% chance of 75 and 33.50 and it flipped, right? It flips every other day at this point. If you're telling me they're still going 50 and the market's acting like this, that's still not great, right? Because there's a lag effect that we're seeing now building its way into the market. And so I still think we have a lot of stuff to get through. And again, 
if the Fed fund features start coming in and people expect either to stop raising, which I think they will, and Dan, you and I have that bet that I'm probably going to no, lose. No, no, our bet is that they're going to they're going to cut. That's different than stop raising. Okay, just want to be really clear. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but then again, as soon as that smoke clears, what are we left with? We're left with earnings that are still are going to be coming down. We're left with a very expensive market, and we're left more importantly still with consumers' purchasing power coming in regardless. And so. All these rate increases are just beginning to work their way into the system. Dan Nathan, you listen to a lot of podcasts, don't you? Yeah, I do. Our friend Tommy Vitor, Pod Save America. You love and, and Pod Save the World. Pod Save the World. Are they? Can they do both at the same time? Well, I think he's doing his My best. My sense is if you save the world, by almost by definition, you'd be saving America. But that's probably for another show. What podcast over the last six to nine months has been saying the 210 spread, two years versus 10 years, would invert to the tune of 50 basis points and it would happen somewhere around two and a half to three percent. Two and a half in the 10 year, three percent in the two year. What pot? It was on the tape that Guy Dimey's been well, saying. Well, Dan, no, Danny Moses has been saying this. Now, I don't bring that up to pat ourselves on the back. Apparently, people get a bit exercised to use that word again, that we pat, we don't do that. I'm not a big believer in that, but we do point certain things out. I only mention it because nobody seems to care. Nobody seems to be bringing up Danny Moses. That ain't a good sign. I don't know. I'm not an economist, but a two tens going inverted to the tune of 50 basis points, which we haven't seen in a considerable amount of time, is not particularly bullish. My opinion. Yeah, we're at 35 now. We're, I mean, again, volatility is crazy in, in these. Let's just talk about this for a second. So the last time that we had 50 basis point wide 210 inverted was uh, early 2000. Okay, And then and, yesterday. Yeah. And then yesterday. So when you think about that, we're going back 20 years. We know that we were in a protracted bear market. We got went into a very deep and protracted recession. I guess the narrative about that rally after that CPI print that was 8.5% down from 9.1% the prior month. I love it how our main man, Dark branded. Did you see one on uh, well, who, who? Biden? What did you say before that? You don't know the Mimi, the internet Mimi, Dark Brandon? I I don't even know what that oh, means. Oh, it's so good. Dark Brandon? Uh, Google it, people. It's basically, they're just talking about how the guy's kind of on a roll coming off of very, very low approval rating, getting a whole heck of a lot of things not particularly right. Now, all of a sudden, they got a bunch of legislative stuff done. They have inflation coming down. They had crude oil coming down. Importantly, you saw that in the last month or so, we had crude go below $5 nationally. Gasoline, yep. Gasoline, excuse me, at the pump, and then it just crossed below 4 So, like, things are kind of coming around as we get into the fall in the midterms. And just so you know, the aforementioned and Tommy Vitor. He's going to be joining us next Stop week it. on the tape. Stop and it. And we're going to be talking about how, listen, all of this legislative stuff. Now, I know, Danny, you probably think a lot of this stuff, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, is not exactly. Mr. Ryan, 400. the IRA is not in the business of legislation. But pumping an additional $400 billion into the economy. Yeah, I don't know. I just saw EV tax credits and threw up. We're going to cover all of that stuff, what it means for the economy and what it might mean for the midterms. You just made me think of something. So. The 10-year yield, I've said all along, I'd rather see the 10-year yield moving higher for a healthy economy. What if the economy is healthier than I think? What if it is a soft landing? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, with quantitative tightening occurring, if we do enter a period where this soft landing, to Guy's point we've made before about let's go chase risk assets. Well, if that 10-year yield starts to make its way, let's say it makes a move to three and a half or four, people are delusional. This economy is not set up. It just isn't. You've seen what happens to it. It comes to a screeching halt. So the Fed does not have our back the next time the economy wants to make a run to keep these rates down artificially. And that, to me, it's not for today. 
Maybe it's not for tomorrow. We talk about whistling past the graveyard. These are things. This is what I'm talking about. You can take one data point and trade it all you want. Guess what? It's coming right back. I'm very happy today. I'm happy that the three of us are together. We're in this room the size of like the rooms in Rome in Europe are very small. This could be a hotel room. Not that it matters. But question to Danny Moses quickly. You mentioned Patriot Games. You did a nice accent there. Yeah. Is that better or is it the Tommy Lee Jones in Blown Away with Jeff Bridges? Do you recall that movie? And Lloyd Bridges. I'll take Patriot Games. You'll take Patriot Games? Because the accent to Tommy Lee Jones, that was a little annoying, wasn't it? Yeah. It's a good movie. I'll you don't take, care. however, Fugitive. I'll take Tommy Lee with Harrison Ford and Fugitive. Put those together right there. So okay. anyway. Sorry, Dan. Yeah, it's Please. good. Well, all right. Let's, let's just see the way I throw Dan. I mean, I can completely throw him so, off so, course. No, you didn't. You didn't. I did. So, so every outhouse, hen house. Will you do that, Danny? You must have that with that. that, that Foghorn was, Leghorn. Tommy Lee Jones when, in the Fugitive. When he's saying that you find that man, I don't care. When he says it didn't yeah. kill my wife, yeah, it is. I don't care. Tommy Lee Jones. By the way, he was Al Gore's roommate at Harvard. Did you know that? Yeah, I didn't know that. Interesting. Okay, sorry. Yeah. All right, sorry. Yeah. And I also know that Al Gore invented the internet. We should have Al Gore on on the tape. No? Uh, he'd be a good guest. Sorry, Dan. I'm sorry. I'm going to stop. Market ripped, soft landing. That's what the stock market was saying the other day. That's what investors were saying the other day. And so your point is you'd feel much better if the 10-year Treasury yield was back above 3%. It got as high as 3.5%, what, two months ago? But the suppression of that yield is basically telling you that growth is not going to materialize. We do this thing called the market call. You've been on it. Guy and I were talking about it today. There's a guy called the at macro Alf. He's on Twitter and he's got the macro compass is his newsletter. This morning, this is Thursday, he said, in short, the soft landing narrative seems misplaced. A soft landing implies a marked slowdown in inflation while growth remains robust. While the direction of the travel seems right, lower inflation growth cooling towards trend, the evidence points to a rather steep drop in economic activity and not a measured and controlled slowdown consistent with the Goldilocks. There you go, Guy Adami. Narrative, grim, forward-looking economic indicators, negative real wage growth for the one and a half years and the reach of the credit card debt to bridge the purchasing power. He goes on and on and on. All right, so speak to that, Danny, because that's I think it. You're that's probably... it. Let's wrap it up. We can leave now. I mean, I, no, Good, that, right? That's exactly how I feel about everything. So you think the economic data starts to get much worse before it gets better here? We saw last week, we are seeing credit turn for the consumer. End of story, period. Is it horrendous? No. Banks are reserving. Look at subprime auto. Look at the amount of repos that are occurring. We haven't even begun this cycle yet. So my point is, there's no such thing as that just bottoming out quickly and coming back. That is a secular move. That is a big move. And the reason that's happening is because, yes, did credit spreads come in a little bit? Sure. On this last round of rates coming in? Yes. But credit now, I've talked about this before, there's stock picking and there's bond picking. And if you're an investor in fixed income, you get to choose from a variety of assets that you want to buy, right? Your long duration type stuff, whether it's auto loan, five, seven years, whatever it may be, student loan, whatever it might be, those prices have changed. And now they're, it's not just about I'll buy anything. It's like, what exactly is that? So there is diversification and people are starting to take a look and that's what you're going to start to see. And I'll end that by saying, Dan, is that I talked about this, I think on Fast Money when you guys set me up, which was companies that don't have great balance sheets that are reliant on coming back to the debt markets for funding, they're in for a rude awakening because there is real underwriting occurring for the first time. And I know Guy watches the HYG as an indicator of things, and you can look at what it's made up of. 
But at the end of the day, if you look at the HYG, you'll see the top 10 names really tight and everything else really It, it is interesting, though, that this week all the, the worst shit rallied the most. Here's one thing that going back to just the economy and how we kind of have this consensus view that it gets worse before it gets better. What about this conundrum in the jobs market? So we had that July jobs print, and then we also have continuing claims. So to continuing claims are starting to tick up a little bit. We've been documenting a bunch of just that kind of layoffs that we've seen primarily in big tech for the most part and media. So is there a scenario where maybe we're wrong? You know, we've had David Rosenberg, Rosenberg Research on a bunch, and he's been talking about if we had a pickup from 3.6 unemployment rate, 40-year lows up to 4%, what that would mean for the economy. Is there a scenario where we don't see unemployment pick up meaningfully, and maybe that's how all this stuff goes right, Guy? There's no question there are scenarios that exist where we're wrong. Absolutely. I mean, can it happen? Without question. That last unemployment print I think surprised a lot of people. I think the White House clearly was thrilled. And I think to a certain extent, the market liked that as well. But I think it's just a matter of time before you start to see a significant uptick in unemployment. It all makes sense in terms of what's going on. Delinquencies are going higher. The next step is unemployment starts to tick higher. The next step is commodities start to tick higher again, which, by the way, you're starting to see after a precipitous sell-off. So All these things are lining up. I agree with you, Dan, that scenario exists. I just don't think it's a likely scenario. Guy, if they recast Happy Days, you are the natural, not for Laverne, you're the natural fit for Arthur Fonzarelli. I appreciate that. And his famous quote, I was wrong. He couldn't say it. He couldn't say I was wrong. In this case, we're not wrong. It's hard to say. This is why. Again, in a vacuum, show me that jobs number. Oh, over 500,000. Oh, show me CPI. Show me PPI, right? Show me all those things. You can craft a scenario. When you look within all those, and we all know how unreliable the jobs numbers can be, but guy, you just said it, the layoffs are just starting now. So those are backward looking things. So is PPI, so is CPI. Everyone knew that energy prices have come down. You knew that the numbers would probably be a little bit lower because those estimates are made a little bit ahead of time. Anyway, so just to try to piecemeal, but take a step back, just go in the street and in the city that you're in and just ask people just to get their temperature on how are things. I said this a couple weeks ago. We underappreciated how good we had it, not even as an investor, as a consumer for so long. And it's now it has changed and that's not going back. Well, that's the thing that we just haven't seen. You just mentioned this a couple minutes ago. We're starting to see like subprime delinquencies, you know, across the board. And so we're seeing this rent spiral higher. I get all that. I think bringing it back to the stock market, though. I see Apple that's down less than 5% on the year. I see Microsoft that's down less than 15% on the year. Stop for a second on Microsoft. Let's talk about Microsoft for one second. But do you understand my point, guys? We have $5.5 trillion of market cap, and and, and Apple this week was nearly 8% of the S&P 500, the highest that any one single company has been of that index of 500 stocks. So I guess my point is, is like we've had this conversation plenty of times this year, is that we could be right on the economy. Economy. We could be right on what the Fed has to do and when they have to pivot, but you could be wrong in the stock market, 100%. right? Let's be clear. Say it all the time. Oh, but let's, I, I, it's clear to me. Let's quickly talk about Microsoft. You brought it up. I mean, Microsoft had been trending lower. Microsoft obviously guided lower a month, two months ago, whatever it was, late June on currency, which is whatever. Microsoft, when they reported the stock closed that afternoon, I believe it was 254. If you go back and look, I'm sure somebody will at me, but ish. The knee-jerk reaction, Dan, to that report, because I was watching it, it traded down to 242, headed lower until they came out and said, and oh, by the way, we're not seeing a drop-off at all 
in terms of demand. And that's when the stock went from negative and it's never looked back. Number one, Apple, for example, you say great quarter. Yeah, I mean, huge numbers. 2% year-over-year revenue growth. When was the last time you saw that from Apple? Market didn't seem to care, but that wasn't a great quarter by Apple standards by any stretch. The reaction was great. The reaction to Microsoft was great. The reaction to Google was great. They weren't great quarters by their standards, in my opinion. People hide in quality. But if they're hiding in that quality, we're talking about like $10 trillion in market cap. We're talking about 45% of the NASDAQ 100. That could keep the whole stock market game intact for a while. So we had this exact conversation nine months ago. This was happening. The market was, and the quality was kind of, and we said the risk is that the big guys will start coming down one by one, you know, soldier, soldier, soldier. They would start coming down. And it did. So Apple, Microsoft, they all sold off 30% from their highs. Right. And now what's crazy about this last rally is I can live with an Apple rally, Microsoft. Those are good companies, right? They're not going anywhere. Yeah, they're great companies. I mean, Foxconn just told us that things are slow, but that's a whole other issue. It's this meme stock rebellion again that's occurring. And it's just shit. But when you start to see even more so the violent moves, if anyone out there that's looking at the market thinks that's healthy, it's not. Good for you if you can buy AMC at 15 and sell it at 25, but you won't. I just don't think anybody who's listening to this podcast is buying AMC Bed Bath & Beyond. No, I, I mean that. I, GameStop, I, do, I know I do not. they are. Hey, just send us, send us a note. Tell us if you are, because I just don't think they are. Really? I think it's a bunch of kids in like the Reddit crowd or whatever. They're still I, Dan, it put Melvin Capital out of business, who's now being investigated by the SEC. Yeah, they were shorted. I understand, but it was a name that's been front and center. People feel empowered. Let me just finish my thought here. Yes, please. Coinbase. Yes. Great. Let's sign a deal with BlackRock to be on their Aladdin platform, right? To trade just Bitcoin. Stock awesome. went from 78 to 104 on the back of that ish. Quarter lost a billion dollars. Yes. Okay. It's a joke. Yes. Okay. And I'm not even, I have no position in the name, but it doesn't take a rocket science to take a step back and tell you that, you know, people get impatient. Hey, how the quarter go at Aladdin? What were your revenues associated with? Oh, didn't happen yet. I mean, it's a market has been about immediate gratification continuously. I'm not saying you have to go out and short Coinbase here. I'm just going to tell you, it's not a long. Well, just so you know, I mean, we were talking about it on the set of Fast Money. I think it was Tuesday night that they reported, and the stock was down 10% in the aftermarket. It was a horrible quarter. I mean, the guidance was horrible. The, They're the, laying the off the work for the no, laying off. Horrible quarter. But then we had that CPI print the next day, markets raging, and it closed up 5 6 7%. Now, I will mention, though, today— I don't mean to interrupt, but you think about the absurdity of that. Because the market's higher, that I mean all this shit rally. That's what your point is, Danny Moses. Like, knock yourself out, go at it, people. That's you, Dan. Yeah, no, have at it, have at it. Oh, have at it, go at it. Tonight in Madison Square Garden, Rage Against the Machine is playing tonight in the Garden. I think that's you know kind of the. They've theme. been playing all week, actually. Have they really? I think the five shows. Just real quickly though, but I think it's interesting. Keep an eye. You just mentioned that gap that it had up to 104. Yes. It's about to fill in that entire gap now. So we had this two-way action all week. And I just think that's really important. So if you see this stock, Coinbase, heading back towards that, I don't know, 70s sort of level or something like that. What has been transitory this year has been the interest in memes and crypto and, oh, I like and some of that stuff. That. No, I mean that sincerely. No, you're right. I poo-pooed a little bit, Danny, because I don't know anybody other than anonymous trolls on the internet who are trading those stocks. I just don't. But you're thinking about it from a sentiment standpoint. It just speaks It has to been the-, the perfect indicator for the mania on both sides. Yeah. It's been the mania for over... Listen, there are good stocks on both sides, Danny. I see what you did there. You see what I did I there? see what Dan I, I did I think we there. have an episode title right there. Oh, I thought Face Off would be... I, that's why I mentioned no, Nick Cage. Doing... When you were doing John Woo, I thought you were going to go with Mission Impossible 2. Right. Mission Impossible 2, done that. they bagged... I think Brian De Palma, I think he directed the first Mission Impossible. You know Tom Cruise just turned like 60 years old? 
He no, no, he looks great. Yeah, he does. No, I loved Tom. I say this all the time. I'll watch anything he does. He's brilliant. Sorry. I wonder if he listens to on the tape. I don't think so. I think uh, I think you've said in the past that you'd watch him read read the phone, the phone book. Yeah. It's absolutely true. He's genius. Say what you. I don't care about the Scientology and all that. Is he wacky? I'm a little wacky. Yeah, a little wacky. But the guy's a genius, and he does all his own shit. It's funny about Scientology, and I know that all of our listeners who are Scientologists are going to get really pissed How, off. What, about three this. of them? Yeah. You could say you don't care about it. It's like a really weird cult. Yeah. No, I mean, and it's dangerous. And, and some of the There's a lot of that going around. Well, yeah. So is owning Tesla, yeah. by the way. Oh, speaking of Tesla, by the way, oh, can we talk about is. it? No, there let's talk is. about it. Because today, again, we're doing this on Thursday. Price action is really interesting, once again. And we talked about that 900 level. You know what? Now you pair of twos here. If you're betting long on Tesla, you know what? There are probably better places to be. I think this stock may have exhausted itself. I think it may have happened this week that Danny's looking to me with eyes. You're like, of course it did. No, but what are your don't. thoughts? Because the why? price action is a little weird today, a little strange. Just so you know, Danny, the other night, I think the Wall Street Journal broke this story at late at night that Elon sold another $6.9 billion. What a juvenile little you-know-what. Okay, $6.9 billion worth of stock. And Danny sends me the SEC filing. He, tweet, he texts me, okay, and he goes, nighty-night, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Has it gone up since then? It's actually it's gone back I'm down. Just saying, All right, you whatever. Know, I'm with you on the short. Okay. There's a senator and a House member now that are demanding the NHTSA open a hearing, have an investigation into this full self driving. Hold stuff, on one so. sec. Real, I, yeah, I want you to talk about this. I, don't I, talk, I was I watching. No, 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 I want you to talk. About, I was watching the TV last night. I don't know what. Oh, I, no, 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 what, I, no. The Yankees lost in the afternoon. I'm watching this commercial. So this cat, Dan O'Dowd, a California software. What's a magnet? Oh, a magnate. He's spending millions of his own dollars in a brutal crusade to take down Leon Musk. I'm watching this commercial. I'm like, I thought Danny Moses, I thought I literally thought you were going to be in the commercial at any point. And I'm watching this. I'm like, I got to call Danny Moses. And then I fell asleep. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, the guy's not dumb enough to be short the stock. He's just, he just wants to spend well, the money. He wants to like. No, he wants to out it. He doesn't think the cars are safe and he's had it with this whole game. But anyway, we'll see what happens. Anyway, the stock, the price action in the stock, I think is something to take note of this week for sure. I do too. We can move on from that. And I know you're having a guest later that you're probably going to talk David to David Faber. I, you know, David it. Faber and Dan Nathan, you guys go out to dinner. What do you go to? Like Port Charles? Isn't that where they do General Hospital? Jeez, what, what are we doing here? I mean. Fort Charles. Where's the name Charles. of the Charles. Four? You're coming tonight, guy. I know. Four. Yeah. The number four Charles. Yeah. Wait, you got guy to go out tonight? So you know what we did? This is how we did it. This so, is underhanded, actually. Karen Feinerman. Oh, like me on Fast Money? Guy and yeah. myself, we each picked our favorite child, and, and, and we're No, no, we're no, don't out. say that. Not that my sons listen to this. No, it, it, my daughter's home, That's and, and Dan knows Lily. Yeah. Lily actually worked for us at Risk Reversal. Yes. Anyway, all right. That. Well, I look forward to hearing about your so dinner. So Danny's got his uh, – you, you have an anniversary dinner tonight, you and your lovely wife, Allison, huh? Yeah, we do. Where are you guys going? Nah, I don't know. What are you doing? Nah, I don't know. You don't have no plans? Nah, maybe I'm, maybe I'm surprising you. You didn't do anything? Maybe a little Home Depot, a little Bed Bath & Beyond. I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be great. It tastes so good when it touches your lips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so listen, we're totally off the rails here. Let's talk about some consumer discretionary because when you hear people talk about XLY, the consumer discretionary ETF, it's really important to understand that Tesla is, what, the second largest holding in that – Okay, so let's move on, though. We got big box retailers reporting next week. We had Disney last night report a good quarter, okay? Parks were strong. Well, let's get your take on that. They basically lowered guidance for subs, raised prices on Disney Plus subscriptions. Generally, a pretty upbeat sort of outlook. What's your take? And then, Danny, I know that you have. So, as you know, Dan, Disney 
starts with the letter D. So that's the D in my dawn trade. And I will tell you, if I'm being fully honest, I think at the time of this, when we put it on or talked about it in November, I think Disney was like $142 stock. Traded down in the 80s. It was an 80, at an 80 handle at one point, which is too cheap. My point about Disney is this. It, for years, uh, warranted a premium valuation. It lost that over the last six months. I think this quarter suggests maybe they should have it back. And parks were very good. I've always thought that Disney Plus was a bit of a loss leader in this spoken wheel business that they've created. And if you look at parks strong, their media business strong. I think if you give them a 25 multiple, which is sort of historically where it's traded, Dan, on the $6-ish that they're going to earn next year, we can all do that math. It's $150 stock. So although it didn't trade particularly well today on the back of those earnings, I still think Disney's okay here. And they added 14.4 million subscribers, right? More subs now than Netflix. Correct. More than Netflix. That was impressive. They're raising prices. We'll see what the lag effect is if people cancel or not. But they're still way cheaper than cable, and they have better channels, so it probably won't happen. And the only reason that they lowered their streaming subs in the future was because they lost to Viacom on Indian Cricket, which we knew that happened in On June. what? Yeah, people watch Cricket, guy. You know how much Viacom paid for that? $3 billion was the rights that they paid. So I don't know how this math works. I don't know how it works. But this but- is why trading is hard, right? So I remember one night on Fast Money, we were talking about Disney. This is like a few weeks ago. The stock was maybe, I don't know, in the low 90s or something. 95. And I said, you know what? I would really look to start buying this thing with an eight handle on it. And somebody like asked me, is like, dude, going to get it there? And the low during the pandemic, it was a panic low in early March, I think, or March-ish of 2020, was about 80, right? And the high... After that, into 2021, I mean, literally early 2021, was guy above $200. I know. And you're saying put $25 on 6 bucks Pre-pandemic, I don't think this year they were supposed to earn 6 bucks. okay? No. So it just shows you how frothy things got in 2021. Then you have a move from 200 down to 90 and I'm trying to nitpick whether I want to buy it at 93 or 83 And here we are. It got as high as 120 yesterday. And I'm just saying... That's why this game is hard. My final trade on Tuesday, the day that Danny just lit up fast money, was that I would not be a buyer into the Disney Yeah, but you didn't short it. I didn't short it. I didn't say to sell it or anything like that. But trading is hard, right, Danny? Trading is hard. And I will say that park attendance was very strong. Now you know where all the money is being spent, $25 hamburgers and so forth. But You said this, go on the street. I'll just say again, I was traveling over the last week. I've been traveling a lot this summer. I've been spending... A lot on travel. And when you look around, a lot of people are doing those experiential sort of things. I mean, that is matter of fact. But I guess the point is, is like at some point, if we do start to see unemployment tick up, we're seeing rents go up, we're seeing all this stuff. Even if you're paying $4 a gallon at the pump, it's still much higher than $3 a year ago. What Disney has now that they didn't have before, and it's probably priced in at this point, is they actually have both sides of it. They have the stay-at-home side on the streaming, and then they got to go out and do stuff. So, so you're actually, saying there's good consumers on both sides? Yeah. <laughs> Again, That's I'm, just saying, I'm just saying that they definitely have a defense mechanism that's now built into the model that probably warrants a little bit higher multiple in the future. Yeah, I agree. And that was sort of the argument for Disney, that they were able to sort of be on either side, the reopen trade, right, yes. But hold on, hold, trade, hold on, hold yes. on. The parks business does not deserve to be at 25 times. And let me tell you something. I didn't, I didn't and, say that. And then that. when you think about the hundreds of... The hundreds, okay, of this millions is what of dollars we call, they're losing this on is, the wait, wait for business. it, Dan. Wait for it, Dan. I don't want to rush this. This, is Dan, is what we call in the business a 
blended multiple. See what I did there? A blended multiple over the over there four ish different businesses. Back to you. Yeah, but I guess the point is, Danny, if you don't think we're out of the woods yet, it's kind of hard to chase a stock like this. Oh, that's fair. Let's broaden this out a little bit to big boxes. We know that we had that Walmart. Isn't that a Spinal Tap song? Yeah, we had that Walmart pre-announcement. The stock had that big gap, and then it proceeded to fill in that entire gap. So talk to us a little bit about what you're expecting from some of these names. We have Lowe's. We have Home Depot. We have a lot of big box retailers reporting next week. Why should they be resilient, or why should they not be under the same guidelines as a Target or Walmart? In other words, they shouldn't be impervious to the ills of a Walmart and Target. I think you're going to see – I don't think to the extent you saw it with Walmart and Target – but I think you're going to see inventory concerns for both those. And I think it was City Dan, that downgraded Lowe's today, today being Thursday. So I think that's a good downgrade. I think valuations don't make sense. And again, I don't think they're going to be impervious to the same ills that basically upset the people in Target and Walmart. I think you have a different clientele in all of those. And they're obviously affected more. Lowe's and Home Depot are obviously by the housing market. So this doesn't take brilliant scientists or an analyst to look and say there has to be a lag effect on what that looks like. Oh, we didn't sell as many grills. Oh, we sold some umbrellas. Oh, we... So I think it comes down to merchandising and what people are carrying and what they're willing to mark down. Walmart's going to be interesting again because we just got a snapshot pre-fed a couple weeks ago. Now we're going to get an update. Let's see what they say. Let's see if they're seeing any type of pickup. I don't, Back listen, to school. I don't think Walmart, it's a great company. It takes more than a couple quarters to get out of that inventory problem that they have. The 32% inventory build we saw there was, in a word, catastrophic. 8% is typically catastrophic. 32 is four times eight. Is that right? So it stands to reason it's four times worse. Back to you. I think Danny just made a really good point because, again, you know, that Walmart pre-announcement a few weeks ago, they didn't give us everything that we needed to know to kind of take a look and and get the health of the consumer. Under the the kimono. But back in the spring, remember we were remarking how companies like Snapchat had pre-announced, I think it was like a month after they had just reported and given guidance. And then Microsoft did the same thing. Well, we just got one from Micron to start this week. Okay, Micron reported on June 30th. And then I think at the time. It's an August quarter, right? The quarter of the guidance. Was, was deemed to be pretty good. They just pronounced it. NVIDIA guided down for the quarter revenues down 17%, which is a massive guide. This was a company that was going to be the next trillion-dollar market cap company late last year, okay, got cut in half or so. I just think that, again, we're so obsessed on an economic recession, and there's all the semantics about what that is. The idea that the S&P 500 could go into an earnings recession, that seems a bit more likely than maybe an economic recession, however you want to define it. NVIDIA took revenue from $8.1 billion expected down to billion to put some numbers. You gave a percentage. I'll give you some numbers. Number one, they blamed it on gaming. Okay, that's fine. They said data center is going to be fine. Maybe it will be, but I got to tell you something. Gaming's first. If they miss on data center, and I think NVIDIA reports on the 24th, they just pre-announced. They didn't give you the quarter. That's going to be a problem, and it's still an expensive stock, and that's a name that everybody universally loved a year ago. Now everybody's starting to get a little wishy-washy. And the Micron was the same thing. Micron is DRAM and NAND. I get it's different. But this is one after another. We're starting to see these guides. And I got to tell you something. At a certain point, it becomes a trend. The only problem that I have with NVIDIA right now, I don't mind seeing huge downgrades to guidance right there, is that this is a $450 billion market company that's down 40% on the year, down more from its all-time highs, that still trades at 14 times sales. Which is expensive. That's kind of my main point. As you say... 
that number should be a hat size. Maybe it's a guy Adami hat yeah, size. Seven and three eights. Thank so, you. Seven so, and three eights. So a name that we've talked about on the show. You're eight and three eights. I'm looking at that dome right now. Oh, it's eight and three eights. No, when I did play football, I had a special. It was yeah. It was no, you had to call like the eight. NFL teams to yeah, get a helmet. And when my hair gets like this, it's crazy. I can't even put on a baseball cap. But SoftBank, right, which is the epitome of all Let me just stop for one second on SoftBank. I mean, they say you don't ring the bells on it. Well, guess what? With WeWork, they rang the effing bell. I remember that. I mean, they invested at WeWork at like a $52 billion value. Is that right, Dan? Something crazy. It was up there, and the thing blew up. And then they're selling out of SoFi here because they have to sell. I mean, these guys are horrible. Uber was a disaster. Anyway, Danny, please. Thank you. You just did that. So, quote, the market. Wait, is this your rot or no? eh, Whatever, sure. The market in the world is in confusion. Okay, that's I Who kind said of agree that? with that. Masa Sun. Masa Sun. Gonna be more selective than what we put into the fund. Thank you. And use less hunches. So I had a rot a year a ago hunch. about he goes by hunches and he does these things. And you know what? They lost twenty two billion in the quarter, and now they're forced to sell everything that's not nailed down because remember, he put up the Alibaba shares and borrowed against those shares. He, that's called leverage. Yeah, it's called leverage, and now it's margin call time. So now he's selling down. We saw that news today. Alibaba, he sold his Uber. Right. He's, he's selling things that he has to now. And you know what? Also funny, I was thinking about. So I'll save my commentary for the live tour another time. But the reason people hate the live tour is because it's backed by Saudi. Well, the entire first vision fund was backed by the same. But no one ever. Jared's new bang up fund is backed by the Saudi. Both sides. So anyway, so I can go on and on. But he's now out of the market. He basically said, I just have to wait now. I'm not going to basically invest in anything. And now he's getting sued. So that same suit from Credit Suisse related to Green Sill that SoftBank was using Greensill to prop up Katera construction in the U.S. That's a whole nother lawsuit. So he has retrenched. Now, you would think the timing of that would mean that the market may have bottomed because normally you see those things, but he's out. So that was the largest, one of the largest buyers of things we've seen in his private portfolio, similar to we saw you know, at Tiger and some of these other markdowns which have occurred in general. But to me, I don't think the market's paying enough attention to that. People saw it was coming. They were short the name. I have no position in the name, but just look at it. Read through that cue. So I'm going to say a couple things here. Just allow me, please, Dan. Please don't do the eye roll that my daughter typically does, okay? So a couple things. You mentioned On and On, Danny Moses. That's a great song by Stephen Bishop, yep. who was in the movie Animal House, if you recall. He was a guy sitting on the stairs. When John Belushi took his And he guitar. didn't know it was going to happen. Belushi, really? compl- oh, yeah, it was a complete Just ad lib. And if you guitar. look at That was filmed at Oregon. You were there on set, I believe, when it was made. University of Oregon. The Ducks. Yeah, the Ducks. Yeah. Number one. Number two, what we haven't even brought up here is the Fed. We talk about the Fed, Fed, Fed. They haven't even started reducing their balance sheets. As a matter of fact, last I looked, balance sheets actually seems to have gone higher, Dan, higher. So what happens when they start balance sheet reduction? I don't know. doesn't seem to augur particularly well. And the thing about SoftBank, and I said it at the time, one of the many unintended or maybe it was intended consequences of easy money, it allowed people to do really dumb things. And now we're seeing the after effect of exactly that. Listen, investing in Alibaba... 22 years ago was a smart thing. Give him credit for that. But he took that basically and some other small winners that, you know, winner, not that wasn't a small winner, but some of the winners he had. And he just basically became what he thought was impervious, what he thought was invincible. And now you're seeing the full circle, but there's no one to oust him, right? He's kind of the guy that, that runs the fund. And now the Vision 2 fund lost a lot of its commitments and now it's retrenching and they're going to play defense. So this was fun. I had fun. I have fun all the time. They call it IRL. We're all in the same room. We're all in the same little closet. So, Dan, I got a question. Wait a uh, second. Uh, Hold on. Let's stop for a second. They call what? IRL. The kids. Who's they? In real life. Oh, that's what that means. Yeah, it means we're not on Skype. or IRL. Zoom. I like in real life. Now we're going to work our way into the summer doldrums, right? After next week, it's going to get, you know, it's kind of like people are in and out. Dan, what is the S&P up right now in August? 
just curious what it is. What is it up in the month of August? Yeah, to date, right now, into the close here on Thursday. I'm just curious how quick he is. Bloomberg. My fact set machine says the S&P is up 1.9%. The Nasdaq's up 3.2%. Shawshank Redemption. Oh. Get up and disappear like a fart in the wind. Because <laughs> that's what's going to happen to this market. So I predict by the time we're here next Thursday yeah. that we have given back. Forget the Nasdaq for a second. We've given back the S&P. We're probably down 2 to 3%. I think... Listen, I'll stand by what I said. This August is going to be nasty. I think you're off by a few weeks, and I'm going to tell you why. If there's no economic data, if there's no big earnings pre-announcement, and there's nothing geopolitical, okay? Well, I'm just going to say this. I think we kind of probably, sadly, float up into Jackson Hole in two weeks. And and then, you know what it feels like? Do you remember August of 2020? You remember the melt-up that we had in a lot? Was, remember the SoftBank whale buying? Remember the gamma squeeze? Oh, yeah. And the NASDAQ just melted up? I think we could probably do that into Labor Day, and then I think September and October are going to get really September nasty. morning. Neil Diamond. Hey, Dan, I, let's let's bet. Wake I, me I'm going to make an easy bet here. $100. Let's just $100. 100, that's fair. By the time we're here next week, yeah. the S&P is down for the month of August. Ooh. Okay. Let's fine. go. It's up 2% right now, yeah. so you made, it's red. Absolutely. That's fine. 100 bucks. As we get out of here, the great David Faber coming on. Love David Faber. As I mentioned, I'm sure I'll say it when he comes on. He's on Mount Rushmore of CNBC. I love the guy. I think his intellect is unsurpassed, and they call him the brain for a reason. So we're going to speak to David Faber. I'm looking forward to that. Keep an eye on commodities, people. Nat gas up about 10%. Soft commodities all rallying. Crude oil very quietly off the mat. I will tell you, the commodity market is saying, hey, Federal Reserve, look over here. Your job ain't done yet. Something to keep in mind over the next week or so, Danny Moses. And Europe is a disaster. Disaster. And I feel horrible for people over there, but it is a disaster. Power prices are rising. There's rivers that have lost so much water, you can't even transport what's even there. And Putin's using it as a weapon, and it's only going to get worse. So we don't talk about that enough. It's a, it's a big deal for humanity. It's also a big deal for the market. I was in London in early July. I was in Italy just last week. Just going to tell you that it, it doesn't feel like anything's that bad right now. And I mean that quite sincerely. I've been all over the country, you know, over the last couple of months. Too. So I'm just saying, purely anecdotal. When you're staying at the Four Seasons, I was going to say he's going to get crushed for that comment. The Ritz Carlton. When you're in Positano, I mean, it's a whole different. And when the, and when the waiter says, "I'll serve you dishwater," you won't know the difference in a foreign language. Dan just smiles and looks at him. Smile away, vacation. Baby. Smile anyway. Away. Right, let's get well, the market's here. about to take a big vacation. So I like what you did there. Thank you. Potentially right. a European vacation. Correct. By the way, meet the Millers. With um, underrated Sudeikis. Yeah, he's yeah. a funny guy. Yeah, he's really funny. He's a really funny guy. So you've seen that? Not the big short. Anyway, wrap it up, guy. Let's go. <laughs> I can get out of here. When we come back, David Faber of Squawk on the Street, of Jeopardy, of Exxon Mobil, whatever podcast that was, or Doc that was, he is a badass. He is joining us on the tape. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. 
iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. David Faber is an award-winning journalist and New York Times best-selling author. He's the co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk on the Street, an anchor and co-producer of CNBC's acclaimed original documentaries and long-form programming. During the day, David breaks down news and provides in-depth analysis on a range of business topics with his Faber Report. In his nearly three decades with CNBC, Faber has broken many big financial stories, including Disney's deal to buy most of 21st Century Fox's assets, the massive fraud at WorldCom, and Rupert Murdoch's unsolicited bid for Dow Jones. So folks, as Dan Nathan will tell you, I've been with CNBC for the last 50 years. The reality is that's not true at all. It's probably closer to 17 years. And I get asked a lot of questions when people do, in fact, recognize me, which happens from time to time. And one of the questions I get is, what are the people at CNBC like? And one of the people they always ask me about is our next guest, David Faber. They say, what is David really like? And I say, I will tell you, He's as brilliant on air as he is off the air, and he is a wonderful guy. And despite the fact that his allegiance is to the New York Mets and the New York Jets, he is a wonderful individual. David Faber, welcome to On the Tape. Uh, thank you so much, Guy. I always say the same thing about you. Bullshit. Guy Dami's the first person that people ask about. No, he's not. <laughs> he's not. But you do get asked, and I do actually say that. Not about you, though, Nathan. No, of course not. No, but let's be frank here. Jim Cramer must be the guy that you get asked about. He's been your, what, broadcasting partner now on Squawk on the Street for, what, 10 years or so? I think it is almost 10 years. And yes, I do get asked about him. Or I get comments. A lot of times, I'm sure you guys get this. They just share with you what they think, right, guy? They tell you what they think about Mm -hmm. somebody. I think that guy Nathan is, or I think Melissa Lee is great, or I think, you know, who knows what it could be. But that's kind of what you get. And I get that a lot about Jim, as you might expect. There's a Mount Rushmore apparently out west. I've never been, but I'm sure it's lovely. Apparently, they want to add a fifth head to that if number 45 has his way. But in terms of the Mount Rushmore of CNBC, you're on it, brother. I mean, you are absolutely on it. It's three decades now. You've broken more stories probably than the rest of the network combined. And you are CNBC royalty. And I think what's great about it is I'm sure you've had a huge opportunities to do a bunch of different things, but you love CNBC, and you love what you do. It's clear when you watch you each and every day on the TV set. Well, thank you for saying that. And I do still enjoy it a great deal. And I enjoy being with Jim in the morning and Carl and being in the moment, which is a fun thing to do. And you guys know that. 
And I still enjoy the learning. We're still coming up against things. It gets a little tougher every year to learn, but uh, I'm still trying to do it. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, when I started in the business in 1997, your face was a mainstay breaking stories. I worked at a hedge fund that was trading stocks, kind of intraday, but also like short-term catalyst-driven sort of stuff. And when the brain came on, Guy, you remember it back in the day, he usually had something to say. You were breaking stories. We were trading a bunch of the telcos back then that and internet into the late 90s or so. Talk to us a little bit about how you became, literally, you were the guy that anyone had to listen to, whether it was telco, whether it was media, and you just, as Guy said, you probably broke more stories than the network did combined. Like, how did that all come about? How did you become this persistent reporter? Because that's kind of what the way I was so-called raised. It was the beginning of my career that I guess I point to. And I don't break news the way I used to, and I appreciate your saying that. Well, when did they start the favor report? Because you were probably up and coming with the network in the late 90s. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I started in 93, September 93, so I'm coming up on 29 years very soon. And I think it was a year or so after I joined, maybe a year and a half, where I started to get something going. Maybe with Fave Report was a couple of years. When it comes to breaking news, it's what I learned how to do with my first job in journalism, which was at a a newsletter that covered the banking industry. It's called The Bank Letter. It was owned by Institutional Investor, something you guys probably know. Back then, it was a magazine. It was known for the all-star team of analysts. But they had these newsletters that were very focused on different parts of the financial services industry. I was hired knowing nothing. I was an English major at college to cover corporate banking, to cover the competition between the then money center banks to land the big loan, billion dollars, $2 billion. It's hilarious because most of those banks are now one bank. They're all JP Morgan Chase. But back then it was Chase and JP Morgan, and it was Manny Hanny. And you can go on from there about all the different competing, not just with US banks, but also the Japanese banks were actually in ascendance for that brief period of time. Anyhow, They gave me an American Express card. They said, take people to lunch, develop sources, and break news. And if you don't, you're fired. And that's how I learned to sort of report. Obviously, I had a long way to go in terms of a learning curve, but the basics of sort of wanting to break a story, even back then it was a weekly that you got in the mail, and I started on a typewriter. Nonetheless, picking up the phone and making calls is sort of what I grew up with, and I haven't really stopped. Which is amazing if you think about the relationships you've built over that time. But talk about the relationships and sort of, it's a dance in a lot of ways, right? You have to be respectful of your sources, respectful of the relationships, yet obviously you're looking for news as well. Talk about that dynamic because I think it's fascinating. You're completely right, Guy. It is a balance. You do occasionally come up on some bad moments Maybe bad's too strong a word. The only time when it really gets bad is if somebody lies to you, and then it's kind of over. And I have, unfortunately, had that happen a couple of times through the years, but very rarely. I mean, when you're involved in a long-term relationship, so to speak, with a source, you trust each other, obviously, and you know that you're not going to burn either way. You're not going to burn each other over one story. And so there have been times when I'll back off on a story if I don't feel like I'm completely there because a source sort of warns me against it in some way. And there have obviously been times when my sources protect me as well from a bad outcome. It is a balance. There are occasionally times when you do have to have some form of conflict or say, come on, man, you got to give it up here. But that's rare. I mean, over time, you sort of develop a certain cadence and you know people know that they can trust you completely. And you kind of know when they're ready to play ball and when they're not really in a, in a weird way, if you come up against them on something. 
Yeah, trust, it seems like, is the name of the game. If you're going to develop a long-term relationship, it has to happen that way. Talk to us a little bit about, again, I go back to the late 90s. I remember you breaking these stories on Telco, but then we saw all this stuff kind of smushed together in during the dot-com thing, right? We saw AOL, Time Warner. I know that you were busy on that. Didn't break it, though. No, it didn't break it. And are there stories like that? You were like, you were that close, and oh, it was just like yeah. a relationship away, that sort of thing. And you're very competitive about that, Oh, right? still am. I mean, I still remember a lot of... Scoops that didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, I did a story on ExxonMobil, but it was totally rumor. I was hearing, you know, but back to what I was telling the guy, I had a source who lied to me about ExxonMobil, yeah. just flat out lied to me, never talked to him again. But that one kills me because yeah. I had it. Talk to us how you triangulate that, though, because is it an investor? Is it the company? Like, there are other people within media. Like, how do you build a scoop to a point where you're ready to break it? You never know where it's coming from initially. You really don't, which is why it's helpful to talk to a lot of people. It can be any number of places. It could be a hedge fund manager who at least thinks they know something or heard something from somebody that gave them a hint. Typically these days, by the way, 25 years ago, it was sort of different. These days, it's if it's a hint at all. Sometimes, though, it's from a CEO. Sometimes it's from a board member. Sometimes it is from a banker or a lawyer. But eventually, you're going to sort of hit almost all of them. And so when you get a tip on, for example, when I broke Disney – Fox. That came to me from a longtime source, and I knew it had to be true given who they are, but then it, I was able to obviously triangulate by also working my way through sort of some of the executive ranks. So it varies where it starts, but it always ends up sort of with concentric circles of making sure you've got it right and then going to the company typically. Those are my favorites. A call that says you've got 10 minutes because in 10 minutes you're never getting off this phone because it's going to be ringing for the next 24 hours. So tell me now if there's anything wrong with what I just told you, because I'm going. And I love making those calls. I don't ha make them nearly often enough anymore. First of all, you're being modest. You do an amazing job. But let me ask you a question, because it's interesting. I grew up as a trader, and each day there was a report card. You knew at the end of the day how you did and how you can do the next day and those types of things. There was an immediacy to what we did. In your world, it's much different. Things take weeks, if not longer, to develop. Are you wired that way? Is that okay for you? Because for a lot of people, there's an urgency, especially in today's world where everybody wants that instant gratification. In your world, things take a lot longer. They do. And you know, sometimes they can come together quickly, but you're right, guy. They can take weeks. I remember the first big story I ever broke for CNBC was British Telecom buying MCI. Remember the old MCI for $22 billion. It was an important story for CNBC because it was November of 1996. And nobody had ever broken a story on television before. The stock went up, whatever it was. And, and I think a lot of people were like, what? Because that was back in the day when stories were still broken in the morning's Wall Street Journal. But in answer to your question, yeah, it can take weeks. What I would say is different now, Guy, is that you can work for weeks on something and you break it and then it's matched within minutes. And- Back in the days I was just describing in 96, like once you broke the story, it wasn't over. You owned it. You sort of were ahead of everybody else. They were always playing catch up. You had time. You could keep sort of advancing the story even beyond your initial break. These days, the half-life of a scoop, as we say, is much, much shorter. And it does make it a little less emotionally rewarding to put in that kind of work when you sort of lose it within minutes of having broken it. Because the internet owns it at that point, exactly. right? And, and every number of different news organizations will make their call to basically the whoever it might be, the spokesman at the company, who will confirm it at that point yeah. because it's out. 
going back to your time on Squawk Box. You used to sit there. I remember you had stacks of newspapers in front of you. It was a big mess in front of you. And you were always being called in. Mark Haynes would have you on. You were this tremendous resource for the network. Now, flash forward, what, 25 years or so, you are sitting at the floor of the NYSC from 9 o'clock until 11 a.m. And you are just broadcasting. You're also breaking news. We've all seen the pictures of you ducking out to take calls and that sort of thing. So how has that changed in a way? Because you spent a lot of your time for the first half of your career as a reporter. Now you are 100% a broadcaster. You still own the stories. I would say what's different now is that you're part of this ensemble with Carl and Kramer in the morning, but they're always deferring to you when it's stuff within media or Delco or M&A, that sort of thing. So how is that? I mean, it must be a lot of fun sitting there in the most interesting part of the trading day on the opening and just being able to riff for a couple hours. Through all these years, right, 35 years now as a journalist, I've certainly developed a certain expertise in areas and M&A. So whatever it might be, there's shorthand, I can sort of pick up pretty quickly what might be going on with the situation, even if I'm just reading the press release, which more often than not is the case these days. I pick my spots in a way that I didn't used to. I used to report endlessly. I mean, I was just constantly trying to break stories. I don't do that anymore. I do focus more on some of the bigger things that we are all focused on as stories and sort of try to pick and choose where I can add some value to the conversation with my colleagues on air. And then when something comes along every so often that I either break or I know a lot about or I know I can advance very quickly through a series of phone calls, then I do it. You don't get caught up in the flavor of the day. Like I think back over the last couple of years, I don't hear you talk about crypto. I don't hear you talk about meme stocks. You're not talking about cannabis and stuff like that. And so talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, what we do on Fast Money is it's a little different. You've hosted it when Mel's been out, that yeah, sort of right. thing. I mean, our job is to really opine on all of that on stuff. Everything. You, you just don't get in the weeds with that sort of stuff, right? No. Well, I try to avoid things that I don't really know a lot about. And so crypto for me, for example, is one. I just, I'm not passing judgment. There's so many smart people, but I'll defer to you guys every time on that. You know, I just don't feel like I fully understand it. And maybe shame on me at this point for not digging in and trying harder to understand it. But until I do, I just don't feel that comfortable really doing a lot of saying much about it. Sometimes I do. Like when that guy Sailor comes on, I just sort of have to ask some questions. But I, I typically don't participate as much on that just because I feel like, well, my colleagues know more than I do. And I'm happy to do that. That's one of the benefits of getting old. You're a little less defensive about stuff. So where I know something, great. But where I don't, I'm happy to have other people take the lead. It's funny you say getting old. People will say, and I've seen it on Twitter over the last couple of weeks, you don't age. You actually look exactly the same now. I mean, I know you don't dye your hair. I'm not going down that route. What's the secret? I mean, you're not Italian, so you don't got that working for you. Like, what's the secret of this fountain of youth? I do not know. I don't know. I'm sure on the inside, I'm like, I don't know. I can't. What are you? I mean, come on. You guys look great. David and I, every once in a while, will be texting, I, I think, during our show, and you will have just left the pool. So sometimes, right? Like, yeah. so you swim every day, right? Often. I hopefully will go from here to the pool and swim. I'm trying to swim four days a week. And you think that's a big part of it here? I love swimming. Yeah. I won't ever give it up. I'll still be in the water my last day, I hope, on Earth. But I guess it helps, I guess. I think, Amanda, when we were doing a little research for this conversation, obviously, we could have sat down with no research and just bullshit with you the whole time. But the 25-year anniversary that they did on the floor of the NYSC for you. Your family came down. Talk to us about that moment. You said you weren't going to get all teared up. You got a little teared up. That was a big milestone. Your family was down there. Had they ever been down there on the set with you? 
My mother, by the way, the other day says, I really want to come down and see that show because she wasn't there that day. So I may have to have her come down at some point. But no, it was a surprise. I was very touched by the people who showed up for my 25th, which was go- is going to be amazingly enough already four years ago. In particular, seeing your kids and then it's four years later, but the passage of time, you guys know that. You just sort of like, oh my God, 25 years and then look look at them and then look how big they've gotten and it's, it is a little overwhelming for them. Yeah, but you were kind of like a punchy reporter. So they had a lot of video of you back in the day in the 90s and you were kind of like really animated you kind of had like this and that or whatever and so was it back then i mean did you feel like tv has changed a lot since then if you think about it you were trying to make a name for yourself a little bit and you really did do an amazing job carving out i guess a brand on cnbc but now it just kind of feels like you know you're just gonna let kramer do all that stuff is that how it goes No, not at all he's him i'm me so we're very different and it works pretty well i think but The early days of Squawk Box, we got very lucky, like you always have to in everybody's career, I mean, in terms of the timing. So we hit the dot-com boom pretty well in terms of when we started that show. Joe and I, Joe Kern and I, had a good repartee, and it kind of became a thing of its own, you know, with Haynes and then Maria on the floor. I look back very fondly on those days. And this is going to be a really odd question. I don't mean it to be, but... You're a journalist. I am not a, I don't pretend to be, I'm not smart enough to be, but I'll say this. You love journalism. Do you love the markets? Because these days, at least the last two years specifically, the markets have become a bit of a video game. Yeah. I have never been as enamored of reporting on the markets as I have about companies. I've always, for me, it's always been much more interesting for my own interests to report on industries and companies. And so, that's typically what I've done, Guy. I mean, I you know, the markets, you can't avoid them. And there are many, many times when obviously I'll dig in on what's going on through any number of the people I know and my ability to get a lot of people on the phone. But for me, the reporting that I enjoy more because you can get an answer. You know, the markets, nobody knows an answer. It's like, what's the answer? Is it we going up? We going down? Who knows? That's always a difficult thing. Whereas with a company, I can sort of make enough calls and ask enough questions that I probably can give you some factual information that's going to help you understand the industry and understand that company's place in it. So I much prefer that. Talk to us a little bit about being there, national TV, 9 a.m. every morning for the last whatever. You've seen a lot of crazy shit. I'm assuming 9-11, you were there. I mean, like some of this stuff that you just had to opine on that you never thought in a million years you'd have to do it. Talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, were there some things that stick out in particular, maybe 9-11 and some of your reflections about that? You know, on 9-11, I had Mark Haynes, thankfully, who is a far more experienced anchor than I. And he just, as our viewers know from way back, and we always hear about that whenever we sort of do a tribute for him, he was amazing that day. So I did not do much other than sit there and like everybody else and just shock. The financial crisis, though, I do remember a lot more seriously in terms of what the hell is happening. And there, because so much was happening constantly, it played to my strengths, which is let me make phone calls and let me see. And that night, I'll never forget being on air. That Sunday night. Doing a special. When Lehman was going down. Yes, when Lehman was going down. And then I was very much focused on AIG. Because for whatever reason, you go where your sources are. I had sources who sort of had been working on AIG, frankly, from the short side, so to speak, for quite some time, but knew it really well. And so I had gotten much more focused on AIG. But I'll never forget those days. I mean, those weeks, it went on for, 
months and months and months, obviously, us always on the edge of like, is what, are we, is it coming to an end? Yeah. Well, talk to us a little bit about the weight of responsibility of being accurate in your reporting and in these periods where really livelihoods were at stake. And I was at Merrill Lynch then, and I remember that. And I remember that Sunday night and the reports that were coming out and people didn't know if their bank or their place where they got their livelihood was going to be insolvent. It was going to be gone. So talk to us a little bit about the responsibility. It also kind of weaves in a little bit about sitting there and watching these events go on that you know are, are just big world events or so. And, and everyone's looking to you for that accuracy. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to be, listen, you're always aware of your responsibility, hopefully, to get things right. During that period of time when so many people were so fearful, it was in particular uh, important not to in any way add to that fear unnecessarily. But I've always felt like the market is the market. You're better off knowing everything there is that we can share with you than me somehow keeping something from you because we think it's going to scare you. But there were plenty of people who we know have come on and sort of scare people without a lot behind it. But for me, again, it was sort of like, listen, AIG is going to lose $100 billion this quarter. That's the number I just heard. And G is going to stop paying its dividend. And I mean, it went on and on. If you got it, you share it, including, of course, to the interview that I did with Alan Schwartz back in March of 08, a few days before Bear Stearns was forced to sell at a deeply discounted price. Two bucks. Then to 10. Then to 10, yep. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned fear or being scared. I will tell you, there were times in 08 and 09 on Fast Money that I was absolutely terrified to go on air because things were happening that obviously I had never seen in my career that I didn't fully understand, yet we were tasked with going on and talking about the markets. Now, obviously, that was just a window in time, but have there been days where you came on air and you're like, holy shit, I mean, things are happening here. Because there is a huge responsibility in being on air that you were maybe not scared, but you were really concerned about how that show was going to go. Yeah. I mean, I think back to that period in time in particular and back to things like Alan Schwartz coming on with me that morning in March and or you can just pick your day. God, I remember when I the CFO, I think it was Keith Sharon, the CFO of GE came in. When that stock, remember, guy, when the all when city when they were all hitting, I don't know, three bucks. What was that March of? That was March of '09, right? That was a year later, and I do remember in particular that interview with him. He was shaking because he was so nervous. Because you know, there are times when you know there's so much at stake. They don't happen often. They really don't. But there are great moments as a journalist when there's something at stake and when there's an interview that actually is of real importance. And so I embrace those, but, you know, obviously also realizing you do have a responsibility. So there's plenty of those times when you get really nervous sort of in a way because you know this matters. How we conduct ourselves right now, what we say and or how we conduct this interview is of actual importance. We haven't had those many. I mean, during the early days of the pandemic, when we were all at home and I was, up, you know, at home as well. And a lot of us were like, what is going on here? And the market was going down every day insanely that was a little scary as well, I think, in a different way than the financial crisis, but certainly scary. 
guy and I, throughout all of that, you know, we were doing fast money remotely. We were doing the stuff that we do. And it's really hard sometimes when you think to kind of disconnect what's going on on a humanitarian level around you. And I think that going back to 9-11, that was probably something. And I remember the idea of talking about the markets at a time where so much serious stuff is going on is really hard. But that's kind of, what, what do you say, guy, that like, that's what we're charged with doing in a way. But it's funny. I mean, hopefully we won't have too many more of those sorts of situations. But for you sitting on that desk, I mean, we've had a comment on terrorist attacks and this, and that. it really does seem weird. You almost want to tell the viewer, hey, why don't you go turn on MSNBC right now? Because we're not the right place for it. Yeah, we'd never do that, as you well know. But I do feel like you're watching us for a reason. And if you are watching, it's for us to talk about what we do know. And there are still plenty of people who have great concern and or interest in the markets even during those periods. But you're right. There is something sometimes a bit of a disconnect when you're talking about COVID, and, uh, particularly in that period where everybody was so fearful, not just for the markets, but for, for their lives or even worse, 9-11, which uh, just sort of stands alone. We did um, Fast Money for years. And if I mentioned President Bush or President Obama five times over the course of those however many years, it was probably a lot. I mentioned that because seemingly politics have collided with our world in ways that you know never happened prior. I don't want to have a political conversation, but how do you deal with that? Because you have to embrace that and talk about it in terms of what's going on in the markets, in terms of what's going on with the Federal Reserve. I mean, that's a bit of a dance as well, because you obviously want to stay agnostic, but it's come into our theater almost on a daily basis. Yeah, I wish it didn't. And obviously, it doesn't nearly as much now as it did during the Trump years. I mean, you guys know that. Because Trump was tweeting and he was focused on the markets so much that you would invariably be drawn in somehow to having a discussion, not to mention China trade, which every day sort of felt like, where are we today on this? And, and again, back to sort of him interjecting himself via tweets into the conversation right in the middle of your show. Sometimes it was you were like, oh, my God, he's watching because we just said this. And I never liked it. You got to talk about it to your point, guy. I'm much more comfortable if I can be, just talking about companies and industries and what may be going on. And we're sort of back to that a little bit more now. You know, obviously, we talked about the CHIPS Act this week. We got to talk about, but it's legislation. That's what you, you want to talk about. We're not talking as much about a particular individual. He was unique in that way. Well, we are talking about one individual every day, the way we used to talk about Trump on financial And TV. I know who that is. Yeah, you know what it is. So yes, you, and I, I you and I had dinner a couple of weeks ago, and, and we're walking out. We had a nice meal. We talked about a lot of different things. And then I don't even know how it came about, but Elon Musk came up, right? And you and I are standing there on Amsterdam Avenue, and, and you're like pleading with me. You're like, but you must think. And, and so you must have heard me. Maybe I said something on the air that day, or, and you were like, come on, whatever you think about him, he's still this, right? And I'm like, no. And you and I were kind of going at it a little bit. All right, let's talk about him because we don't talk about Trump on CNBC anymore, but it seems like every day, I mean, Musk has taken a page out of the Trump playbook because what is he doing? He's setting an agenda every morning on Twitter, the company that he has agreed to buy for $44 billion that he doesn't want to buy, that he keeps selling Tesla stock in case he has to buy it. You've been reporting on it a little 
bit. You said something that caught a little steam a couple weeks ago, right? A little <laughs> bit. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I'm bringing up anything that wasn't all over no, the media but thanks here. Thanks for bringing it up again, right? Dan. Right. right. Yeah. But my point is, is like it's kind of exhausting in a way. And so, to Guy's point, he never used to have to talk about presidents. We had to when it, during the Trump administration. Now we don't really talk about a whole heck of a lot about Biden, but we have to talk about a guy who is Trumpy AF, as the kids say. I disagree with you again, and I'm happy to have the conversation. Elon Musk is the single most consequential businessman on the planet, and I challenge you to tell me otherwise. Tesla is a $930 billion market cap company. Love it or hate it, that's what it is right now, roughly. I haven't looked. They are by far the leader in selling electric vehicles around the world. Climate change is a huge issue. All right, right there. He's important. SpaceX launches rockets all the time, real rockets. And by the way, have you seen when they come down? That's not sci-fi. They're actually landing. He's done that. He's done that. I'm sorry. He's in a different league. Yeah, he seems childish, doesn't seem to take advice when it comes to what he should or shouldn't say via from a legal perspective. And he makes news in many other areas. But he's also the world's richest man. Yeah. And I, again, I think he's the most consequential businessman, and he is at the helm of two incredibly important companies. And I don't disagree with that, but I'm just going to say this. And, and I started out by saying it's Trumpy AF, as the kids say, right? And so here's the deal. This is what happened to Donald Trump. He did the impossible. He got to the White House, okay? Then he lost the House. He got impeached twice. He lost the White House. He lost the Senate. He's under investigation by almost every federal agency or every agency in New York. What I'm saying is, is that we might have seen peak Musk. You're going to get really busy, David, reporting, I think, on the Musk empire over the next few years, the way you maybe reported on Bernie Ebers and some of these other situations. I mean that quite seriously. You really believe that? I, I think there's Why? a- He's a liar. You think he's a liar? He is a liar. A couple months ago, when he sold all that stock, he said, I'm done selling stock. Right. And he just sold stock. Well, that and was in April. And then actually, he also said it was a buying opportunity the other day on August 4th. Okay, during but, their annual but he didn't only sell stock. He sold $6.9 billion worth of stock. He's a child. Okay? Like, the jokes aren't funny. You know what I mean? And if you're the asshole who bought the stock when he said that he's done buying stock and then he sold it down and it sells off 10%, I just think that he doesn't think the rules apply to him. And if he's using the playbook of number 45, it didn't end well for him. And it only gets worse from here. That's my personal opinion. Well, I completely agree that he thinks the rules don't apply to him. And I think it will be fascinating to watch in particular – What happens with Twitter when it comes to that? Because if the rules do apply, he's going to end up owning that company. Now, maybe it ends in some sort of a settlement where he pays a bit less. But it does seem to me more likely than not, if it does go to trial starting October 17th in Delaware, that the rules are going to apply. And again, he has a way somehow of figuring stuff out and always coming out looking okay. But that's going to be really interesting. I'm expecting to have an actual front row seat. I've never been in all the years I've covered m and I've never actually been in the courtroom in Delaware. I'm hoping they actually get there. We'll see if they actually do. But uh, it would be great to watch. In 1960, Richard Nixon debated John F. Kennedy. And a lot of people say the election basically turned on that debate because John F. Kennedy looked great and Richard Nixon was sweating like Paris Hilton taking the SATs. I mentioned that because you mentioned consequential business people. And I would submit that being able to tell your story through our lens, through the lens of a CNBC and through the media is extraordinarily important. And I would say that Jamie Dimon has figured that out. And I think his bank is rewarded for it as opposed to some other people. So my question to you is, as a business leader, 
how important it is today to be able to tell your story effectively in our world in television? It's an interesting question. I mean, you think J.P. Morgan benefits guy because J.P. Morgan uh, because Jamie is a great communicator, or, or absolutely, I absolutely think they get part of their premium valuation is predicated on the fact that he tells the story extraordinarily well and he's extraordinarily media friendly, as opposed to some other guys and gals that don't do it nearly as well. And I don't think they're rewarded on the back of that. Yeah, I mean, I think I would agree to a certain extent that that's true. And believe me, any any number of the professionals around them might encourage that same thought. I do know plenty of people who don't regularly communicate with us in a way and who've had great success. But I do think there are others who would benefit from that. And then there may very well be, as you say, some companies and their CEOs who do benefit. But uh, Jamie's sort of a unique – don't you consider him to be sort of a unique situation in his own way? I mean he's got – he does have a lot of confidence in what he says. So many of these CEOs – will choose to communicate, but then they're not going to say anything. I mean, they're instructed not to say anything. Yeah, go on CNBC, go talk, but God forbid you should give a straightforward answer to a question. You know, they've got their general counsel in their head. They've got their head of corporate communications in their head. They got their outside corporate communications person, all of whom are saying, just run out the clock. Just run out the clock. It's only eight minutes. It's 10 minutes of live TV. Just if they ask that one question, just, you know, say something else. I mean, how often does that happen? No, they Dean Smith it. I totally get it. But I'll juxtapose a Jamie Dimon with a John Thane, who's a brilliant mind, but he was miserable in the same medium. And I think, listen, I think to a certain extent, the company suffered for that. I think being able to communicate effectively, both externally and internally, is an incredibly important part of that leadership position like a CEO. I mean, I think it goes without saying. And if you're not good at it, I would think that there is going to be an implication for you, and maybe you're not going to be in your job as long as you might want to be. You know, our friend Max Myers, he gets shout-outs on this, on this podcast every once in a while. So he's, he's always fascinated. He loves covering the media on his media, right? He's a, a producer on, on Squawk and Friends in the morning, and he was on Fast Money for years, dear friend of all of ours. So again, do you think it's as interesting for the regular viewer of CNBC, right, to hear about all this media coverage. You've been reporting on it forever. We talked about all these stories that you broke. And of late, I mean, all the AT&T reporting that you had been doing. Talk to us a little bit about that, because in your career now, we've seen M&A, bundling, unbundling, you know, like spin outs, all that sort of stuff. Where are we right now in this whole process in the speed in which AT&T unwound the Time Warner deal? I'd never seen anything like that to that scale. And so did it usher in a new period of just the kind of media conglomerate? Are we going to start seeing all this stuff being unwound? I don't know. I think AT&T is sort of a unique situation. It was, as you say, pretty stunning. We were talking at the very top sort of about scoops that in the last few years, I haven't broken that many stories. I sat there on that damn Warner Brothers story for months, not weeks, so long that I almost forgot because I could not imagine. I had it, but I, I had it, didn't have it quite right. I couldn't imagine that AT&T was going to get rid of all of it. I thought they're going to sell Turner and that's what it'll be, including CNN. But I never imagined they'd part with HBO and everything else. Man, that still bums me out that I didn't break that. And they know it too. Even Zaslav knows. He's like, I know you're pissed off. And uh, that's why you're so mean to me on <laughs> when we did the interview. Yeah. Anyhow, I don't even know why I went there. But uh, listen, we cover the media a lot, more than we probably should. I think certain aspects of it, nobody cares. When it comes to like streaming, I mean, it's such a part of people's lives that I think 
I enjoy covering it in part because I do think it has, everybody can connect to it immediately, right? I say, what's your favorite show on HBO? What's your favorite? You probably don't even know anymore what they're on. That goes to sort of the bigger issue. But everybody connects to it in their lives. So I like talking about it. We are in the midst of this unique moment where we have this huge shift going on that that I've been talking about, hearing about, reporting on for 10, 15 years, which is essentially the unbundling that you talk about, the cord cutting. And the question really is and remains, you know, we had this amazing cable ecosystem that the three of us, by the way, have benefited from, where you got all these people to pay you every month, almost none of whom watched. And that's changing. We know that's changing. And the question becomes, in direct-to-consumer, can you ever even come close to recreating the economic model that you used to have? I think we're starting to learn the answer is probably no. And the question then becomes, well, where is the sweet spot in terms of what you have to invest and what you can actually expect in a return? And we don't know the answer yet. So I am finding it fascinating. I mean, we're sitting here. It's it's a Wednesday afternoon. Am I allowed to say that? Right? Yeah, yeah, and okay. Disney's coming out after the close. Thank you. Going? Disney's yeah. coming out. We're going to see what their direct-to-consumer looks like and their numbers look like. I think it's really interesting to watch this transition, report on this transition and the way people consume media. It's really funny. So this morning on Squawk on the Street, you and Kramer were talking about this and Kramer said they have to get away from plus and they have to talk about parks and all this. And you're like, really? You're like, do you think they're going to be able to do that? And that, and I love that about your relationship with Jim, because the way in which you are able to push back on him is really fascinating. It helps tease out some of these stories because you guys are both approaching these same stories from different viewpoints. You often as a reporter, him as slightly a market participant, would you almost say? And so it's really interesting to see that come out because I hadn't thought about that yet. And I guess by the time the listener hears this, we're going to know if they were successful in doing that. But your view, very simply, and Guy's been saying this, Guy, you've been annoyed with all the throwing the plus on the end of the thing and saying it's streaming and this and that. It just seems like putting lipstick on a pig for a declining or a melting ice cube that we've seen now for the last 20 years or so. So, again, thoughts on Disney, though, because this is a fascinating situation. Situation with Chapek and Iger. Any interesting insights there? My take is if you gave me the over under of two years on Chapek out, I'd take the under in a heartbeat. You would. Yeah. I will not weigh in on that. Probably not a good idea. I will say, you know, people still say Iger. He's Iger's gone. It's over. That's it. He's, he's out. Totally yeah. out. Not involved. This is Chapek's company. Love him or hate him. The decisions he makes are going to are obviously going to be very consequential to his own future at the company, right? He's already 63 years old. He's made these targets, 230 million to 260 million direct-to-consumer subs by the end of 24. He knows the parks really well. They've done a bunch of stuff there. This mess in Florida that he got themselves into, you know, it's it's tough. You talk, uh, guy, you were talking about communicating and effectively communicating. You know, there's another example of it, sort of understanding how to navigate things like that. Disney's a perfect example. It'd be interesting to hear from JPEG soon, and I hope we do. You mentioned transitioning. I'm going to do that now. For many of our audience members, these two years will have no meaning whatsoever, but I guarantee when you hear them, they will. 1969 and 1986. And David's smiling because he knows in 69, both your teams emerged victorious and the Mets in 86. So you have to pick one. Only the Jets can win the Super Bowl or the Mets can win a World Series for the remainder of your lifetime. Which way are you going? Oh, that's brutal. That is brutal. Strangely, because I have at least lived through a Mets World Series victory, even though I was sadly alive in 1969, I have no real memory of the Jets winning the Super Bowl. I think 
the Jets winning the Super Bowl. I think that would be the one. And I think that's the more unlikely one in my lifetime at this point. I'm starting to well, think. Well, as we mentioned earlier, the way your team's playing this year, um, the Mets, to me right now, they're playing the best baseball in Major League Baseball. I think you got a great shot this year, and it pains me to say it as a Yankee fan. i also say this. The thought of potentially playing the Mets as a Yankee fan in the World Series scares the shit out of me. The other thing that scares the shit out of me is appearing on Jeopardy. And i got to tell you, I'm going to throw a name out. Maybe this means something to you. Maybe it doesn't. Harry Dean Stanton. Does it mean anything to you whatsoever? Yeah, I kind of remember him, right? He was an actor. He was an actor. One of his great roles was in Escape from New York, and his nickname in that movie was The Brain. People call you that for good reason. And I tell you, when you go on Jeopardy, you kick ass. And I was rooting for you to get that job. How close were you to potentially being the full-time host of Jeopardy? It was a, a decent shot. I had a decent shot there. A lot of things didn't cut my way, including a very strange decision-making process and the sort of contest ending with the executive producer getting the job, however briefly. And that threw the whole thing off. And that, I think, uh, scared some of the big shots at Sony in particular. He was on our air earlier. I don't even care anymore. Tony Vincequera from making a decision that should have been me, most likely, but it wasn't. He still hasn't made a decision. They've just got those two, and they're great. But I had heard some things that it, that once they sort of brought a new showrunner in, a new executive producer, that they were going to really move forward with a new host. And I had an expectation, perhaps, that was not realized. But But that's Hollywood, baby. How much fun was it hosting? I mean, it seemed like you were having a great time. I think you did, if memory serves, you did five episodes. Am I right? Or was it more? That's it. Just five episodes. You tape them all in one day. Yeah. How much fun was that? It was kind of nerve wracking, actually. I mean, there were moments that were great. They take you to their library at the back of the lot, the Sony lot. And it's like the Jeopardy library. And there's actual books. It's not, you know, and you sit down with the with the writers of the show and you go over all the clues and that was the most fun. I would look up, I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm doing this. And it was really interesting because you, you have questions on certain of the clues and how to pronounce things, of course, uh, as well as an important component of, but they're actually pulling books off the shelf and like looking up answers, or I should say, excuse me, correct responses. You don't say answer on Jeopardy. That was great. But the actual taping of it was, I have to admit, a little nerve wracking. As long as I've been on TV, nonetheless, they like things done the way they like them done. You want to get it right. I was trying, obviously, to do the best job I possibly could. And so I'd be lying if I said it was just fun. In retrospect, I'm so glad I had that chance. I wish it had been more than five shows. Even just two weeks would have been really even more fun because I think I would have gotten better at it. And I always want to get better at things. But I'm very grateful I had that chance because it was a once in a lifetime. Before I worked at the network, I was a huge fan. I've become a bigger fan. I wish we saw each other more frequently, but I'm privileged to call you a friend. Thanks for joining us on the tape. It's my pleasure. I look forward to seeing you in the studio more often. <laughs> oh, there it is. That that must have come from EC guy. That was a little <laughs> message there, man. No, it wasn't. He's got a great presence. Yeah. Of a great physical presence, too. It's, it, don't you think it's yeah. important? We say this all the time. I mean, literally, he he was an original, Fast Money, and that whole show, it wouldn't have the brand that it does without Guy. And so I'm very fortunate to work with 
them every day, and I do enjoy it very much when you are on set, Guy Dami. But the other thing is, I'll just say, David Faber, you know, you and I have gotten to know each other over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, and just your work is just remarkable, like the respect that we have. And I come at it very similar to Guy in a way. I'm not a media person. I'm a market participant, and I was watching you long before I was ever on CNBC's air, and the amount of respect that you have in the investment community, the banking community, that sort of thing is just astounding. So I am very fortunate to call you a friend, a colleague, and uh, we wish you another, what, 10 years maybe on CNBC? Would that be fortunate? I mean, I'll just take 10 more years on this planet. We'll start with that, and then we'll take it from Yeah, and there. hey, Guy, he'll look the same as he does right now 10 years from now probably, right? It's remarkable. It's swimming, and David knows this. Every day you're out of the pool, it's like two days not being in the pool. So you got to stay with it. I, I mean, got, I know. I know. I, believe me, I'm moving a lot slower than I used to. It's not it's not pretty, but you got to – half of it's psychological, but uh, you got to keep pushing, right, Guy? I mean, you know that. You still you do those triathletes or stay whatever. Moving. Yeah, I will stay moving, guys. This was so much fun. Thank you both for Thanks, having. Man. We me. hope you come back. Really enjoyed it. Really fun. Thank you. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.